Right. Before we jump into this passage in Romans 10, young ones, if I can have your attention, I'm going to tell you what this passage is going to be about and what the sermon is going to be about. Uh, if you remember last week, last week we talked about things that seem really simple but are actually pretty complicated. Things like, like how does a bike work? There, there's actually a lot of disagreement on that. Uh, like, what's up with yawning and laughing? Uh, we, like, simple things, simple things that are complex, but the reverse is also true. That there are complex things in the world that are also really simple. Okay, so, young ones, did you know that a super, super, super smart mathematician, he took 372 pages to figure out one math problem? One math problem, and you, you here, kids, you know that math problem, and you could solve it in one sentence. One plus one equals two. Okay, someone wrote a 372-page paper about how that's true, about how that's actually mathematically correct. Like, okay, so apparently, and I don't know how this works because I'm not a mathematician, but supposedly, like, one plus one equals two is actually really, really complicated. And at the same time, that's the first math problem you learn as a little one. One plus one equals two. Seems complex, and it's also really simple. Okay, how about this? Another super, super difficult thing that's also really, really simple is the word the. T-H-E, thank you. So simple, T-H-E. And it's one of the most difficult words to explain. If you went to a dictionary or if you Googled it, uh, the, it'll tell you that there are 12 different ways the can be used correctly. I mean, just think about, think about this. Why do we say, I love the theater, but we don't say, I love the Netflix? Why do we say, I have the flu, but we don't say, I have the COVID. Actually, no one says they have the COVID anymore. Um, <laughs> can anyone define, can anyone here, young ones, can anyone here define the? Anybody? What does the mean? Paul, go for it. <laughs> exactly. Thank you, Paul. That makes my point. You're like, oh. It's so easy, it's so simple, and it's so complicated, and yet we know how to use it. It's tricky, and it's simple. Okay, and just because, y'all, here's the thing, just because you don't know everything about math, I know nothing about math, I use math all the time, just because you don't know everything about math, you're still going to use math, and you need to, just because you don't know how to explain everything about the word the, we use it all the time, and you, and you should, otherwise you can't make sense of, you know, what you're saying. Okay, that's what Paul is going to tell us in the book of Romans. Not about math and the, but Paul is going to tell us today, in, a, in an actually, it seems like a really complicated chapter, he's going to tell us that the gospel is simple. Yes, it is super profound. It's super big and awesome and complex, and it's simple. And because it's simple, you should use it, even though you may not understand everything about the gospel. So, kids, what is the gospel? Can anyone tell me what the gospel is? Anybody want to just... Say something, yell something. What, Druzy, do it. The Word of God, good. And the Word of God about what? Jesus. I mean, there, what's the gospel? The Word of God about Jesus. Okay, and what does that Word about Jesus say about Jesus? He's good. So good that what did He do for you? 
died on the cross for you. I mean, here we are. Y'all are like taking, like, y'all just did that in literally 10 seconds. That's the gospel. And yet, y'all, we come here every Sunday and we talk about the gospel for a long time, and we're going to keep doing it every Sunday and every Sunday. And did you know when we get to heaven, we will talk about the gospel forever because it is that big, that profound, and yet we can talk about it in a sentence. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Paul, Paul says, if you confess with your, this is in Romans 10 where we're going to be today, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth, if you just say Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe, yeah, Jesus is God and he died for me, you will be saved. That's the awesomeness of the gospel. The gospel is so big, so complex, and so simple that we can talk about it with anyone. And here's the last thing, guys. Because it's so simple, you should talk about it with anyone. Young ones, kids, because you guys do know the gospel. And so if there's a chance to talk about it with a friend, to talk about it with someone, you should because even though the gospel is so simple, it doesn't mean it's not so awesome and powerful. The gospel is the most powerful thing there is. So awesome, so powerful, because the gospel about Jesus living for us and dying for us, that is the power of salvation for anyone. So we should talk about it. That's what Paul's going to tell us today. And here's Paul after an awesome exposition of the gospel in Romans chapters 1-8. through 8, Paul turns his attention to this problem. This problem, what about Israel? So all the assurances of salvation that Paul has been so so, uh, enthusiastically talking about, all the promises of this eternal life, that it's all been accomplished, just believe and you've got it. All of that can be brushed away with this objection, supposedly, with this objection. Okay, yeah, but what about Israel? Because Israel used to be God's favored people. And now, Paul, you're saying Israel is not God's favored people. So, did God fail in His promises to Israel? And if He failed in His promises to Israel, what does that mean for you, the church? That's such a big question. Paul spends three chapters, Romans 9, 10, 11, answering that question. God's, and he says that God's promises have not failed. Uh, And he says, because, this is the key to it in Romans 9, not all Israel is really Israel. That God, from before the foundations of the earth, this is this election stuff that he is unpacking, God, from before the foundations of the earth, he chose whom he desires for salvation. And he does it not on the basis of anything in us, but for reasons in himself. So we've started to answer that question. We continue to answer that question today in Romans 10. And just, you know, this is just a good time to point up just how much I, you like, you need to know this is not, this is not just my stuff. Like super helped by Meredith G. Klein, Meredith M. Klein, Todd Bordeaux, uh, even our own Juan Carlos Martinez, who's over at Christ Presbyterian Church. Uh, my friend Matt Howe, uh, my friend Les Newsom, Sinclair Ferguson. Just, uh, so just want you to know you know, standing on the shoulders that have come before us. Uh, reading of Scripture this morning is Romans 10, verses 1 to 21. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for Israel, is that they may be saved. 
For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient, disobedient and contrary people. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Okay, thinking caps on. How did the nation, nation, how did the nation of Israel relate to God? Okay, that's one question. How did an individual faithful Israelite relate to God? Okay, that's another question. Israel versus Israelite. And the two questions have two different answers. How did an individual faithful Israelite relate to God? Think about this. How did an individual faithful Israelite relate to God the same way that any believer since the fall relates to God? It's the same way any, any, any believer has ever related to God since the fall. You get this peace with God. You get this eternal salvation through faith in God's promised Savior. And it's all of grace. Like None of us earn it. None of us deserve this salvation. All totally by grace, demerited favor, you don't earn it. Okay, that is not how the nation of Israel related to God. The nation of Israel related to God based on works, not grace. The nation... So remember, God made Israel His kingdom on earth. He made them His theocratic nation by giving them the law. That's Moses and the Ten Commandments stuff. And He makes them His nation. And He says, if they obeyed the law, and really, like, you know, how much do you have to obey? Like, really just enough to look different than the surrounding pagan nations. Like, if you're this light on a hill kind of thing. Uh, If you obeyed the law, then they got to keep the land of Canaan. 
They got to keep being the kingdom of God on earth. They get to keep their kingdom. But if they disobeyed, God would kick them out of the land. And we're going to talk more about this next time and and the fullness of this picture. But that right there, that's a relationship based on works, not grace. You've got to obey or you get kicked out. And you cannot mix those two up. Like, how does Israel versus how does an Israelite? Like, you cannot mix those up. Israel's obedience to the Mosaic law was only ever about getting to remain in the land of Canaan. Like, obeying the law, that was just about getting the land of Canaan. But some in Israel thought, well, that's how we get God's eternal kingdom. We obey. If I obey, I'm righteous. God loves me. I get to go to heaven, you know, get to be a part of his eternal kingdom forever. That's wrong. Since the fall, a person only ever gets the eternal kingdom of heaven by grace, through faith in God's promised Savior, the one that he promises right after the fall to Adam and Eve. So here is Paul, and he contrasts the works of the law and the faith of the gospel. But he does it in such an interesting, oh-so-brilliant Paul way. Verse 5, he says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And what he, he, he shall live in the land, shall live by them. Okay, okay? Contrast that with the principle of faith. Verse 6, but the righteousness based on faith says blah, 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 blah. And that blah, 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 blah stuff is Paul quoting the Old Testament. But this is where it's not blah, 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 blah. This is where it gets really, really interesting. Oh, so brilliant. Paul, he quotes Moses from the very end of Deuteronomy. And originally, those quotes that you see right here in Romans 10, that he's applying to the righteousness based on faith, Moses is talking about the works of the law. Like, does that make you dizzy? Truly, Paul has a dizzying intellect. Okay, at the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses has just, like, so let's go back to Moses in Deuteronomy. At the very end of Deuteronomy, Moses has just given the whole law, all of the commandments, all of God's commandments to Israel, and this is what Moses says. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like Romans 10? Moses says to Israel, gives them the law, the Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand. When? When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of this law. Listen to this. For this commandment that I command you today, it is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Okay, but Moses was not saying, hey, Israel, you got this. Like, here's the law, and you're totally going to do it. You're going to be great at it. You know, no problem, you got this. That's not what he's saying. Moses was saying, listen, it's not a mystery what God wants us to do now, because he's told us. Like, God has revealed his commandments and told us exactly what we're supposed to do. So, no excuses, you guys. Like, this is still a running joke today. Like, when we read all of the Old Testament and all of those commandments and the specificity and the seeming randomness of it, like, listen to this. This is Deuteronomy 20, 19, and 20. This is a command. When you lay siege to a city for a long time, fighting against it to capture it, do not destroy its trees by putting an axe to them, because you can eat their fruit. Do not cut them down. Are the trees of the field people that you should besiege them? (laughs) There's humor there. That's funny. 
that you should besiege them. However, you may cut down trees that you know are not fruit trees and use them to to build siege works until the city at war with you falls. Okay, got it. Steward creation. Pretty, pretty specific example there, God. Okay, thank you. Got it. How about this? Deuteronomy 22.8. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from your roof. Like, what are we supposed to do? Like, you know, like God tells you, hey, do this in this situation. Do this in this. Oh, yeah, and here's the other, like, big stuff. Uh, okay, love your neighbor. Uh, oh yeah, love God, and there's only one of them, one God, and only worship Him. Don't worship other idols, and that stuff of uh, don't murder, and don't commit adultery, and don't steal. Okay, so Moses is not talking about whether or not, you know, back in Deuteronomy, Moses is not talking about whether or not Israel will be able to obey all these commands. He's saying, you've got the commands. It's accessible It's been made available to you by God's revelation. You don't have to go up to heaven to wonder, what does God want me to do? You don't have to sail across the seas to get it. So there's no excuse for not doing it. Like, oh, I didn't know that was a rule. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to lie. I didn't know that's what God required of us. You know, I'm just a poor, simple farmer. No excuses. Okay. Paul, here back in Romans 10, Paul is now quoting Moses intentionally to say that same principle it applies to the gospel a person who is saved by faith does not say what extraordinary life do i need to live to be saved by god a person saved by faith does not say who will ascend into heaven that is to bring christ down is in a person saved by faith doesn't say like what do i have to do to save myself to get up to heaven A person saved by faith doesn't say, Paul says, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. That is, a person who is saved by faith does not say, okay, what penalty, what suffering do I need to go through to help Jesus pay for my sin? No. Paul is saying that the one who is saved by faith says this, all I did was believe in Jesus for salvation. So the gospel is accessible. It's not too hard to understand. Children get it. Little children get it. You don't have to be a scholar to understand it, and you don't have to help him with your salvation by being really good to get it. He did it. And then it sounds like Paul goes off on a call to evangelism. And this is, but but first, what he's doing here in the rest of that chapter in Romans 10 is, He's anticipating an objection. And here's the objection. Okay, well, wait. Is it possible that people of Israel are not believing God because God Himself has not met the conditions for them to believe? And these are these questions. If God wanted us to believe this gospel, you know, He would have done this. He would have done that. So Paul, so here's Paul, and he enters into their objection. Verse 14. How then will they, Israel, call on Him, Jesus, in whom they have not believed? Like, this is the thing, this is how Paul frames their objection. Like, how can Jews call on Jesus to save them when they don't believe that He's the Jewish Messiah? Like, how can the Jewish people be expected to believe in Jesus when Jesus is not part of the Old Testament religion? 
Like, how can God hold them responsible for not believing in Jesus when the Old Testament didn't teach anything about Jesus? Okay, and then here's the next condition. And how are they, Israel, to believe in Jesus of whom they have never heard? Like, the Jews never heard this gospel before Paul, so how can they be expected to already have believed it? Next condition. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You know, Paul, most Jews don't live in Jerusalem. They're spread all over the ancient Near East, and so they never met Jesus. So how could they possibly know Jesus is the only way to salvation if no one has ever bothered to tell them? There's one more condition, verse 15, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? You know, why is it Israel's fault if those who know the gospel are not sending preachers out into the world to tell all of Israel this good news about Jesus? And then, and then this argument, you know, here's Paul in this argument, like, okay, and you could even quote Isaiah, like, didn't our own prophet Isaiah prophesy how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? Isn't that God's promise to send messengers to Israel about the good news of the Messiah, that the Messiah has come and His kingdom has arrived? Well, how can we be expected to believe in Jesus if God has not fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy of sending preachers to Israel? So here's the problem, as stated, verse 16, not all of Israel has obeyed the gospel. And the question is, why? Well, these conditions have not been met. So if Jesus is the Messiah, that would mean that God has failed Israel. Is that what you're saying, Paul? And now Paul comes to it, and he confirms, verse 17, faith, yes, faith does come from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. Double true. And then Paul examines all of these excuses, beginning in verse 18, to expose these for what they are. Empty excuses. Paul says, verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? And he says, yes, they've heard. And then he quotes from Psalm 19, which is awesome. He says, their voice has gone out to all the earth. Paul applies this quote. Originally, that quote in Psalm 19 is about the revelation of God to all creation. So Paul takes that quote, and then he applies it to the gospel to say, yeah, okay, and to, it, this also applies to the revelation of the gospel to all Israel. Yes, they've heard. Their voice, these messengers of the gospel, have always been going out to all Israel. Moses, Aaron, Joshua, the priests, the judges, the prophets, the kings, all the sacrifices, the temple, the festivals, the covenants. We could go on and on and on. All these voices have been testifying to the Savior to come. And it continues to go out to Israel. Since Jesus, since Jesus actually came to earth, uh, the gospel started with Israel. Jesus said to the apostles after his resurrection, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Paul's theme of Romans is Romans 1, 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Israel has heard this gospel of this Savior, says Paul. And Paul goes on, verse 19, but I ask, did not Israel understand? Like, did Israel not understand from the Old Testament 
that this situation was coming, that God would bless the nations with this gospel of salvation through Israel. This is they should have. Paul quotes, and then here Paul quotes Moses and Isaiah who said very explicitly the Gentiles are going to be included. And he could have, like, here's Moses, Paul, he could have quoted what God said to Abraham. He did earlier. You will be a blessing to all nations. I will make you a blessing to all nations. Paul could have quoted what God, he could have gone even farther back in the story. He could have gone back to Noah after the flood. He could have talked about Shem, who's the ancestor of the Jews. He could have talked about Japheth, who's the ancestor of the Gentiles. The promise to include the Gentiles has been loud and clear to Israel. And Paul quoting Moses, Isaiah, and the Psalms here, it means that he's quoting the law, the prophets, and the writings. He's quoting all the Old Testament to say this is all over our Scriptures. No excuses. God revealed to Israel over and over and over the situation to come, the mission of the Savior to come, and the plan to include Jews and Gentiles in that plan of salvation. And that the inclusion of the Gentiles, this is even prophesied that the inclusion of the Gentiles would anger the Jews. So Israel cannot say that God never told them about this coming Savior or that He was coming for Jews and Gentiles. Which does raise the question, so why do some Jews not believe? And again, this was predicted by Israel's own prophets. Paul quotes verse 21, but of Israel God says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The Jews that do not believe in Jesus do not believe in Jesus because they don't want Jesus. So, so that sincere concern that we have for Jews, like this thing of like, will God also save them? That is, of course, a good, sincere concern. Paul, that is still Paul's concern. Paul is still concerned, and he's still sharing the gospel with them as we should. That should still be our concern today because we believe that God is still saving Jews through the gospel and we have to look at the situation historically. Like, just that question in a vacuum, like, well, what about the Jews? Like, think about that question historically. God showed His love for Israel by offering the gospel to them first. By, God showed His love to them by preserving this revelation of the gospel through Israel. God showed His love to Israel by sending the Savior of the world into the world as an Israelite. Israel, more than any other peoples, had access to this gospel, this gospel their whole entire history. And so, Paul says, God has not failed Israel. The Jews who rejected it simply did not want to believe in Jesus. And this is where another objection comes up, uh, and, and where another objection is answered. This objection of, but what if someone wants to believe in Jesus but is not admitted into heaven because they're not elect. Okay, and here's the response. That's not how it works. Election does not exclude anybody from the kingdom of heaven that wants in. That's That's not how it works. The problem is nobody wants in. 
nobody wants in. Everyone is running in the opposite direction from God because nobody wants God. Romans 3, what we just confessed, makes it no one seeks God. No one. No one is seeking after God. The good news is that this God of grace is seeking after us. Anne Lamott is an American novelist, uh, and she knows this personally. Uh, and this is what she has said. She said, I did not mean to be a Christian. I have been very clear about that. My first words upon encountering the presence of Jesus for the first time 12 years ago were, I swear to God, I would rather die. I really would have rather died at that point than to have my wonderful, brilliant, left-wing, non-believer friends know that I had begun to love Jesus. I think they would have been less appalled if I had developed a close personal relationship with Strom Thurmond. At least there's some reason to believe that Strom Thurmond is a real person, you know, more or less. But I never felt like I had much choice with Jesus. He was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, but as, as the old description has it, but as the alley cat of heaven who seemed to believe that he, if he just keeps showing up, mewling outside your door, you'd eventually open up and give him a bowl of milk. Of course, as soon as you do, you are, and this is the PG version, you're, you're screwed, you're, you're in big trouble. And the next thing you know, he's sleeping on your bed every night and stepping on your chest at dawn to play a little push-push. I resisted as long as I could, like Sam I am in Green Eggs and Ham. I would not, could not in a boat. I could not, would not with a goat. I do not want to follow Jesus. I just want expensive cheeses or something. Anyway, he wore me out. He won. I was tired and vulnerable, and he won. I let him in. This is what I said at the moment of my conversion. I said, and again, PG version, forget it. Come in. I quit. Okay, that's the paradox that's been revealed way before Paul said it, you know, way before Jesus showed up, uh, showed up on earth and he's saying it. It's verse 20. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, is so bold as to say that God says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. Paradox, what? I've been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Not only does God not reject any who want to believe, God goes after those who do not seek Him. That's all of us. That's everyone who has ever been a believer in the gospel. It's not, it's not that God doesn't save those who want to believe. That's not reality. Grace is that He saves those who don't want to be saved. And understanding that, then, this is a call to all of us to the church, to evangelism, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to go after those who don't want it because they're perishing without it. And so that sincere concern that we have for the lost, what about those who have never heard the gospel in the remote parts of the world? What about them? Yes, exactly. Like that is a good concern that should be on all of our hearts and your very good concern for those who have never heard the gospel where did that very good concern come from? Because we can sometimes try to pit our concern for those who have never heard the gospel, we can pit that against God as if He really doesn't care. But this is Paul's whole point. God is concerned for the Gentiles, and God has always been concerned for the world. 
Again, we have to look at this situation historically. The gospel going out to the nations, it's, there's a new organization between Israel and the church and how this, yes, but this is not a new call from Paul of the good news going out. The gospel has been going out to all peoples ever since the fall, starting with Adam and Eve and their kids and their grandchildren. The gospel has been going out to people uh, down from them, down to Noah, and since the flood, from Noah and his children and their grandchildren, down to Abraham, who lived and sojourned among pagan nations, sharing this gospel, down to Israel, who was a light to the nations. Paul's call is that the gospel would continue to go out to the nations because there is no people group, there is no kind of person that is beyond saving. You know, we all have that, well, if you're this kind of person, who's that person in your mind is like, not possible? Yes, it is. Of course it is. There's no kind of person that is beyond saving. This gospel is accessible to all, and you don't have to become Jewish first for this Jewish Messiah to save you. In verse 12, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, for Jesus who is Lord is the same Lord of all. Which answers this other objection. We're ending with this. This stuff about election, the objection is this stuff about election, it produces, you know, this evangelical laziness. Well, why preach the gospel? Why share the gospel if God is going to save those who he's going to save? Okay, but think about who is explaining election here. This is Paul. This is Paul who opened up the whole thing in verse 9 saying he longs for his countrymen's salvation so much he's willing to be accursed for them. This is Paul who has been beaten, imprisoned, tortured, run out of town. He's been shunned by his own people all so that he might share the gospel with them in order that some might be saved. Paul believed that God has not only ordained the end that people become Christians, but he's also ordained the means by which people become Christians, which is through sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he's he's an old pastor. He's an old pastor, and he defines the ministry of the church. He says the ministry of the church is an ordinary means of grace ministry. As in, like, church ministry is really just about the Word. It's really just about prayer. It's really just about the sacraments and worship. It's really just about fellowship around those things. And he says, an ordinary means of grace ministry is the thrill from the point of view of those who share in that ministry of watching the Word of God work. It's the thrill of watching the Word of God work. He says, but I've become more and more convinced that the default among us in the church is that we do the work and the Word helps us. And perhaps that's an indication that in our churches we see far too infrequently of what it's like when the Word of God shared in the power of the Holy Spirit itself does the work and changes people's lives. Loved ones, hear hear this. This is an invitation from Paul to the church, to us. This is a call from Paul to us. Don't you want that thrill of watching the Word of God work? Because the Word of God works. Because it testifies to the one who has done the work of salvation. Jesus said about Himself in the Gospel of John, this is chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. 
the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus came to give people a chance to be saved. The question is, did Jesus in his life and in his death, did he accomplish that mission? Yeah. Yes. Jesus did not come to make salvation possible. He did it. So Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Father, we stand, uh, Lord, in awe of your word uh, because it is so deep, uh, as deep as the ocean, deeper, uh, Lord. And uh, we give you thanks because it's also that thing of uh, even, even young ones, little ones, we can wade into it uh, and know it and be blessed by it and be saved by it. Father, we thank you for this gospel. Um, we pray that you would bless us to understand it more and more. Lord, as Peter instructed us, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we would never stop wanting to know the love of Jesus and His grace and His rest more and more and more. And Lord, as we learn more, that we would be driven out to love each other and love, love those who share that communion with Jesus with love and grace and to love those who don't know Jesus with that love and grace in order that they might share in it with us. Father, give us that kind of heart. Give us that kind of heart, we pray, for your people and Lord, for the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.